Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Paget here and on this week's podcast I'm incredibly excited to be interviewing Louise Feely to talk about food packaging and restaurant branding. But before we get into the interview, I want to give a big shout out to FreshBooks, who has sponsored this season of the podcast. And I can honestly say without them, this podcast would not have happened. So I want you guys to go and check FreshBooks out so that you can support them. If you're not familiar with FreshBooks, it's an online tool that allows you to easily create and send invoices, track your profits and expenses and more, allowing you to be organized and professional when you work with your own clients. If you like to give it a go, you can do that with a free 30-day trial just by heading over to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek and be sure to enter Logo Geek in How Did You Hear About Us section. I'd also like to give a second shout out to Holabrief, who have also sponsored this episode. Holabrief is an awesome new tool that I'm really excited about since it can allow you to collaborate with your clients to define goals, ask questions, create user personas, positioning maps, competitor maps, and so much more. It's been designed and built by designers for designers, so it looks great and it's really easy to use. I highly recommend that you go and check it out, especially whilst it's currently in uh, beta because it's completely free to use. Go give it a try on your next project just by heading over to holabrief.com forward slash logo geek. Now, as mentioned on this week's podcast, I'm incredibly excited to be interviewing an idol of mine, someone who I see as a real legend in the design industry, and that person is Louise Feely, an Italian-American graphic designer best known for her work in food packaging and, and restaurant design. She has won numerous awards, including gold and silver medals for the Society of Illustrators and the New York Art Directors Club. She's also taught and lectured extensively and her work is featured in a number of permanent collections in places like the Library of Congress and the Cooper Hewitt Museum. She has also co-authored a long list of inspiring design books and she is also a member of the Art Directors Hall of Fame where she's received the Medal for Lifetime Achievement from the AIGA and the Type Directors Club which is absolutely outstanding. In this episode we discuss how she started out in food packaging and restaurants, her design process, typography design, her books and so much more. Rather than keep talking about it, I'd rather just jump straight into this. So here is the interview with the amazing Louise Feely. So following an art director role at Pathian Books, I understand that you started your own business to work on brand development for food packaging and restaurants. What was the reason why you chose to start out on your own? Well, when I started out as art director of Pantheon, it was kind of a grim time in publishing. Uh, no risks were being taken and everyone seemed to think that type on jackets had to be big and vulgar. But I was on a mission to prove that you didn't have to shout to capture someone's attention. And the, the cover that I did for The Lover by Marguerite Dura was probably the best example of that, because uh, this author was relatively unknown in the U.S., although she was a celebrity in France. 
And in spite of that, and in spite of the very understated cover that I did, the, the book became a runaway bestseller. So I think I proved my point. And also, Pantheon had a very impressive roster of European authors, which which gave me an opportunity to experiment with a different period of type history on a daily basis, which which uh, allowed me to find my design voice, which was very important. And and then at the same time, all the art directors in the industry were so poorly paid that we all had to freelance for one another. So after 11 years at Pantheon, I had enough clients to allow me to start my own design studio where my goal was, crazy as it sounded at the time, to focus on the only three things that I'm interested in, food, type, and all things Italian. So how did you go about choosing food packaging and restaurants as an area to focus on? Well, I grew up in an Italian-American household. Need I say more? (laughs) (laughs) uh, The main topic of conversation every morning was what to make for dinner, which to this day is still the first thing I think of when I wake up in the morning. (laughs) So it it should have come as no surprise to me that I would end up designing for the food industry. Um, I, so, so I started out, I didn't really know how to go about this, but I started out designing for restaurants and I quickly learned that in New York city, this is the number one business most likely to fail. But on the other hand, I always try to be an optimist. So, um, I always had a table (laughs) until the restaurant closed, which would happen very often. Um, so after a year or two in the restaurant business, I decided to branch out and get into food packaging which which at the time looked a lot like the way book publishing had looked when I first started in that industry. So I, I thought, well, why can't a, a package be beautiful and seductive so people want to, to buy it and bring it home, just like a book? And, and that opened up a whole new arena for me. Uh, packaging also offered me a, a whole new dimension because I was so used to just the limitations of two-dimensional book jackets. And to be able to get into that third dimension was uh, really luxurious. I can uh, relate with that because I've done a small amount of packaging work uh, recently. And it's so great to see the final thing. And, and it's definitely something I like to do more of. So I'm, I'm really curious to, to know from you, since at that time you didn't have any packaging experience, when you decided to pursue that direction, how did you actually go about getting your first client? Well, what happened, because um, the restaurant started first, and I, that was just a fluke. Like, there just happened to be a restaurant down the street that I had referred a friend to, and uh, she, was, she was there one night, and they were agonizing over a logo design that they didn't like, and they needed to hire a new designer. And she said, oh, well, you have to call him Louise. Um, But my first foray into food packaging was actually while I was still at Pantheon because somehow I got connected doing some wine labels and, um, and I did an olive oil label and they they were all kind of flukes. They just, they, I don't even remember how, how these people found me, but it was, it was a good way to, to start out. And at least I had something to show when I first started looking. And then what I did once I started my studio and I was looking more seriously for food packaging work, I, I did two things. I, it's the only time in my, in my career, I think, that I actually hired someone to make phone calls for me because who wants to do that? So 
so I gave her the catalog from, uh, she would come in like once a week and I gave her the catalog from the fancy food show, which is the big trade, uh, show for food, for food producers in New York every, uh, summer. So I gave her that catalog and had all of these contacts listed and she would just pick up the phone and call these people. And I thought better you than me. And she actually found a couple of that way. That's, that's how I got connected to Bella Cucina, which was one of my first uh, clients in food packaging. And I'm still working with them now. That sounds really impressive. And I, I think it's a really good idea to simply find suitable contacts and then reach out to them. I can imagine now that's a lot easier than it would have been back then. Uh, thanks to the internet, since you can easily direct those customers to yeah. examples online. And now people can Google, you know, designer of Bella Cucina uh, packaging. But, you know, when I started out, there was no internet. <laughs> so it was particularly challenging. Yeah, I bet. But I think the concept of it still applies today. Um, because if you did want to work on food packaging as you did, the, the basic principle is to find... Um, contact details uh, for the different food companies and then reach out to them as your as your assistant did so I, I think it seems like a really savvy move that would still work today yes, it could and the other thing I do now is I, I go to that same show the fancy food show every summer and I usually always pick up at least one new client every time um, and, and very often it was something as simple as in fact I was standing this was several years ago I was standing right in front of the Bella Cucina booth talking to one of the owners and someone came up to him and said who does your packaging i've got to find a new package designer and i always wondered what would have happened if i hadn't been standing there <laughs> would he have given her the information or not but i was very lucky and and you know with with sarah beth who is still one of my clients um she happened to have her booth right across from uh, one of my clients. And she said, who does your packaging? I mean, because, you know, people don't have the know-how or, or the time or energy to look for a designer, especially pre-internet. So that's how they did it. They would just go and knock on a door. So at those shows that you go to now, how do you approach businesses to sell them your services? Well, you have to be really careful going to those shows because the last, the last person that these people want to see is a designer looking for work because <laughs> they, they're there yeah, just to sell yeah, their product. Yeah, yeah. So I'm usually very, very discreet about it. And usually what I just try to do is follow up on people who may have already contacted me in, in the past and then I never heard from again. And, um, or, you know, and sometimes I'll just, I'll just go up to somebody if, they're, if no one else is around and it looks like they have no one else to talk to. I'll say, you know, tell me, do you really love your package design? And, and a lot of times they'll say yes. And it's like, okay, well, great. <laughs> See you later. But it's always worth asking. As long as, you know, I just try to do it in the least offensive way possible. Yeah, it sounds like a really nice way to go about doing it that doesn't sound like you're trying to sell to them, but instead just uh, expressing an interest in, in what they're doing. Yes. And, um, I love it that if they do say no, you can tell them about your services w without being of any annoyance to them. And you'll know that they're likely to be interested in, in what you're doing as well. Right. And I think what's worked really well for me uh, on my site, I have a, a section called before and after because a lot of the food packaging that we do are makeovers. Because usually when a, f 
a food producer starts out, they don't have the know-how and they don't have the budget to hire a real professional designer. So they'll just go to a family friend who has a kid in art school or something, and that's what they get for it, you know. Um, but And then what will happen is five years or 20 years go by, and suddenly they realize that the quality of their package design doesn't measure up to the quality of the product. And that's when they usually call me, which is great, because I love doing makeovers. It gives me enormous satisfaction to clean up after someone else's mess. So, uh, and, but, but for these clients to see the examples on my site of the before and after is very reassuring for them because, because whenever I talk to any of these people, they'll, they'll come in and they'll tell me, you know, I hate my package design. It's terrible. It doesn't represent the product, but then they're still afraid to make a change. So I, what I've learned in doing these makeovers is that you can actually change a lot as long as you keep one or two key elements. So like with Sarah Beth, I, I kept the oval on her jar. We also kept the same jar, which people were used to recognizing. And then I just refined all the types. So I just kind of upgraded everything else. I kept her name in upper and lower case. So in her case, it, it, um, the way it worked out is a lot of people would still keep going to the grocery store and reaching out to grab the same jar of jam and, and may have not even noticed that there had been a, a design change. But but they suddenly had a higher regard for the product, and that's what we aim for when we do makeovers. We don't want to make a huge change, unless the original is so bad that it has to be radically changed, and that has happened. Yeah, I really like that part of your website. It, it puts into perspective what you did. Uh, I know sometimes you're looking at a logo and you don't understand what the goals were. And I think uh, what you've done is a, is a nice way to show that visually. Oh, thank you. Um, it's really nice to see for me as someone that finds your work inspiring, uh, but more importantly for uh, potential clients to get a, a feel for what you can actually do for them. Now, you clearly found your niche and it's been a real success for you. What advice can you give to designers that are searching for an area to focus on as you did? Ah, well, I always tell people, just follow your heart. You know, you have to find something that you're passionate about and then combine that with design because otherwise you can get very bored very quickly in this profession. Um, and I think this is what's kept me from going out of my mind, <laughs> but you, you have to really, you, you really have to make it your business to become an expert on whatever your area of focus may be. And then you find ways to connect with those people who will help you with your goals. So in my case, like when I first started my studio, because I wanted to do restaurants, I contacted architects who specialized in designing restaurants. And again, this was pre Google. So I had to find them in other ways, you know, I had to look them up in, in books or magazines or whatever, and, and then make a cold call or, or send, or send them a, uh, a promotion. Uh, that's, I used to do that as well before I had a website and you, I would just do these, these limited edition letter pressed, um, promo books that I would only give out to people who I know wouldn't throw them away. That sounds like a nice thing to do even today to impress people. Yes. Now, I know that you've been working on food packaging for a long time. And earlier you mentioned that, that people can get bored of what they're working on. What is it that, that's kept you so fascinated with food packaging for as long as you have done? 
I mean, you you've been working on it for like over thirty years, which yeah. is which is a long time to focus on one specific area. Yeah, I've had my studio for twenty nine years now. So uh, and before that. I was at Pantheon for 11 years, so it's, it's, I put in the time, yes, but, but fortunately, I really love food, and I never get bored with it. (laughs) I mean, and it's crazy as restaurant people can be, because that was a big shock for me when I first started my studio, Uh, because here I came from, from the very conservative world of publishing, where they, you know, the, the client is is right there in the same building with you. It's not really a you know another another company. So the, and so they knew how to work with designers and they knew what designers were supposed to be doing. But but I still remember the first time I met with a restaurant client, I had to explain to him why he had to pay both me and the printer. They they didn't understand the difference. <laughs> and and I also found myself dealing with a class of client that was just shy of gangsterdom, but. But then once I started uh, working more closely with architects on on projects, I was I was finding myself doing restaurants that were of a, a, a higher um, class, so it was a lot better. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you was able to make a, a success of that. Now I know that you worked on a lot of logo designs throughout your career, so I'd I'd love to learn a little bit more about your process because I I found by doing this podcast that most people work in in a slightly different way. So could you talk through the process that you take when working on a a logo design project? Oh, sure. Well, whenever I get a call about a new job, uh, before I set up a meeting, I have to ask a few very critical questions, which, and I think these questions have come up before with some of your other interviewees. The first one is, who are the decision makers? I think that's a very, very important question. Because if they tell me that one of the decision makers is too busy to come to a kickoff meeting, then I'll tell them that I'm too busy too. And, you know, if no decision makers, no meeting. Because the last thing that you want to deal with is someone who's trying to second guess their boss. And that's, that's also why I prefer working with smaller companies. I really can't stand working for big companies. I, you know, I'm rarely satisfied with the end product. Uh, the, the money, of course, is better, but it, for me, it's just not worth it. Although that said, I have had some positive experiences with a, a few places like Tiffany and Good Housekeeping. Those both went well. Interestingly enough, on both of those jobs, I only dealt with women. How about that? So, okay, so that was the first question. I don't want to get off track here. The next question would be, have you done a trademark search of your name? A lot of times we forget to ask that because everybody seems so secure uh, about what they're doing. But this is extremely important because you don't want to design the best logo ever and then find out that the name is not available. The, The only time I think I didn't ask this question was when I was working with a very highly respected and very very successful restaurateur here in New York who owns many, many restaurants. And I thought I would be insulting him to ask him a question like that. But after we designed the logo, which they loved and approved, then we found out that the name wasn't available. And for that and a number of other reasons, it was shelved, the whole project, which was too bad. Um, so let's see, I'm still on the phone with them. We still haven't set a meeting. One more question if it's a restaurant. Have you owned a restaurant before? (laughs) And if the answer is no, I I hang up the phone. I mean, this has happened too many times. 
And I've, I've designed restaurants for seasoned professionals and they have still gone under. So why do I want to try out a newbie? No, thanks. So, so then we'll arrange to have a meeting. And, and since I mostly work with small companies, I'm rarely given a brief and there are no focus groups. I'm, it's just me asking a lot of questions and trying to try and just get the people to talk as much as they can. And so I, I can really understand who they are. So at the first meeting, I'll listen to what they have to say. And, and then I'll start asking all my questions if, um, if I need to. I usually have about at least about 20, especially if, if it's a restaurant client, then there are a lot of specific questions. But this is sort of a, a warm-up exercise as far as I'm concerned. So, so obvious things like how will the logo be used? Let's make a list. Because if you're designing a logo, let's say, for a, a publishing company, you need to know that 90% of the usage of that logo is going to be stamped in foil, like about a quarter of an inch tall on the spine of a hardcover book. So it's, it can't have any fine detail or you're never going to be able to read it. So you, a lot of this is about knowing what you don't know. And then questions like, who's your competition? Let's look at their logos. Let's make sure that yours is going to be different. And what sets you apart from your competition? Who's your market? Um, you know, and on like that. And and that always that always helps get the conversation going. And then if it's a restaurant specific situation, um, I'll ask things like, you know, what do you want the dining experience to feel like? Because um, they're always very particular about that. And and I always I always want to know right away if they have an architect or interior designer, and if there's anything that I can look at because. I found, especially with restaurants, is that even just one small cue from the architect can can really offer invaluable design inspiration. So that, that's really important to me. And then things like that you wouldn't think about, like what, what does a facade look like? Because the facade can drive the design of the logo because, especially in New York City, the the available space for a sign is extremely limited and there might only be space, let's say for a hanging sign, which means that the logo can't be too tall or too wide. Sometimes there's like a very specific place to put the logo, which will dictate the size and shape of it immediately. So it's, it's, it's kind of important to be aware of that. And then of course, is this a landmark building? Because that can dictate a lot. There are all kinds of constraints with landmarks. And then I always ask, when do you expect to open? And that's when I try to keep a straight face <laughs> when they give me the answer, because I've never worked on a restaurant that opened on time. It just doesn't happen, not in New York City. Um, so after I'm done with the questions, what I like to do, if I can, if I can do it, is I, I like to talk about general directions, general design directions that I might want to take with the logo just, just so that no one will be unpleasantly surprised when I see them at the next meeting and I show them these logos and then they say, oh, that's not at all what I expected. So let's say the client is a wine importer. So I might suggest that we try to make the logo look like uh, a wine label or a grape leaf or a, a red wax seal or something like that. And then I'll show them examples from my ar archive to illustrate that which is another reason why I prefer to meet at my studio where I have all these materials on hand. Um, 
because I always find that if, if clients come to my studio, there's, there's so much around for them to look at. There's my own work and then all of my collections that there's always something that will resonate with someone that um, comes in very handy. So then, and I always say we have to just stay here for as long as we have to. It could be a couple of hours. I, I, I don't want the meeting to be over until I'm sure that I have enough to work with. And we'll agree to meet again in a month for the presentation. So, um, so the, the most important thing about that next meeting is this. It's always, the meeting is always held in my studio in the afternoon and I serve gelato first because I have a great gelato client. And then I show the logos and it always works. <laughs> the only time it doesn't work is if they, the last minute they bring along a, a, a decision maker who was absent at the first meeting. But it always helps uh, make people more at ease because they're, they're nervous when they come in to look at a logo. Who wouldn't be? Um, and, that's, and that's one thing I've learned over the years that I never really had thought about before is that Every now and then I realize I have to put myself in the client's shoes because they're, they're nervous. And, and, and in times I've, I've actually come out and asked them, what do you, tell me what you're afraid of. And they'll always give me an answer. No one has ever been insulted that I asked a question like that or they'll say, no, I'm not, I'm not afraid of anything. They always have something they're afraid of. And it's usually something incredibly irrational. But then we talk it through. I talk them off the ledge and then we're okay. So... So it's worth it. So, so after the gelato, I'll show the logos. And I, I will usually present uh, two to three very finished-looking logos that, so they don't have to use their imagination at all. And um, I also like to show examples of the logo in use whenever I can because I, I think it's a good way to generate enthusiasm about, about the logos themselves. So I'll sh I might show it if it's a restaurant. I might show it as a sign or as a, a box of matches or a, a tray or something like that. And, of course, what I usually do is I pick my favorite and I do the, the fanciest presentation for that one. And it usually works. Um, so we'll have a big discussion about the three options. And the client will choose one direction for a round or two of refinements, at which time we'll talk about color if we haven't already. Sometimes I like to show the logos in black and white, and sometimes I like to show them in color. I, I'm always a little wary of showing it in color. If it turns out that the client doesn't like that color, we, we could lose a good logo as a result. But sometimes we'll talk about color at the first meeting, so I have a better sense of where they're at with that. And sometimes it's it's obvious what what sort of range we should go in colors, but sometimes it's not. So well, you have to be careful about that. And, um, and then if the logo requires an illustration in the presentation, I'll just use an illustration as a placeholder. And then, and then if that's the one that they choose, then we'll have to talk about who the illustrator is going to be. Or sometimes we'll, we'll do the illustration ourselves in-house, or I'll use something from my archive. It, it all depends. And, and most of the time, it works pretty well. I mean, there was only one time that, that I had a group here that had a really hard time deciding so I did something that I've only done once, and I hopefully I never have to do it again. I told them that no one could leave the room until they reached a decision. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and it worked. And they used the logo for a couple of months, and then the CEO mysteriously disappeared, and, and so did the logo. But these things happen. 
Yeah. Oh, nightmare. Uh, so, um, yeah, thank you for going through that in such detail. I do have a couple of questions to expand on a couple of areas that you spoke about. So you mentioned that in the initial conversation you agreed upon or discussed some kind of general direction. Are you just making those choices on the spot based on the uh, conversation are you, or are you stepping away from that for a while and then coming back with those suggestions? Like how, how does that part of the process work? I think it really depends. I, I mean, I don't always do that, but I, I like to do it as long as I feel secure that those directions will work because sometimes they leave the room and I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> but but I think because if, if it's food related, especially because I've been doing that for such a long time, I kind of know what the options are. Um, I also will do something like I'll say, well, you know, let's try one direction that's purely typographic and then we'll try something with an, an image and then we'll, and we'll talk about what sort of imagery we would want to do or uh, let's try one that's that has a monogram because I love to do monograms and a lot of clients like that so um, so that's a, sort of a given so it, it somehow it, it, it kind of works itself out uh, in within the conversation as long as there are as long as I can, get a reading from these people as to, you know, who they really are. And, and so I can understand what the logo really needs to do. I can usually have a vague idea of how I'm going to approach it graphically before they leave the room. Mm, sounds like a really useful thing to do, because if you've, if you got it totally wrong from the outset, you can clear that out in that initial meeting rather than waste time on something that's not going to get approved. So I, I, I really like that part of your process. Yeah, it's great when it works. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to ask about the location where you work as well, because you mentioned that you prefer people to come to your studio. Yes. Does that limit the amount of potential clients that you can get? Or would you still work with, say, a, a restaurant in a different country and work with them online? Or, or would you only ever take on projects uh, where people can actually come to your studio? Oh, well, if they're in New York, I'd like them to come to my studio. Yeah. But certainly when I did Tiffany or Good Housekeeping, they didn't come here. Which was too bad because I, I mean people get excited when they come here because there's you know there's so much on display and they love looking around and they get gelato. Um, so what could be bad? But um, but if it is an out of town client or out of country, um, I don't expect them to come. Although I I always you know I always say well you know do you have any plans of coming to New York? At some point everybody passes through New York and 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 a lot of times we've been able to kind of schedule it so that they, if they were planning a trip, I'll make sure that I can do a presentation when they're here. And it's always better doing it in person, but it can't always happen that way. So I, I've done it on Skype and it's, it's been okay. I just want to take a short break to tell you a little bit more about FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast. If you design for clients, you need to be paid and you'll also want to look professional and be organized. FreshBooks is a fantastic accounting tool that makes it easy to do just that. Designed with freelancers and small business owners in mind, with FreshBooks you can quickly create branded invoices with your own logo and color scheme, you can view and manage your profits and expenses, and you can see an overview of everything in a really beautifully designed dashboard. 
You can also make it easier for your clients to pay too, since your clients are able to pay directly from the invoices itself. And as an added bonus, the software will also automatically notify your clients if they've not yet paid, taking away the need to have that awkward conversation in those situations. You've got to go and check FreshBooks out and and you can do that with a free 30-day trial just by heading over to freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek and how did you hear about a section. Now let's get back to that interview with Louise Feely. I want to also ask you about your logo design work because a lot of your designs have a really nice hand-drawn aesthetic to them and you you mentioned about um, sometimes you would put in a a placeholder. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of questions on this but for starters how do you go about creating logos like that with um, you know with a really beautiful hand-drawn aesthetic like your Manhattan Fruitier logo? Right well I think this all has something to do with the way I design the logos, which is all about sketching, which goes back to my time at Pantheon. Uh, because when I designed book jackets, the first thing I would do, of course, was read the book, believe it or not. A lot of people don't realize that you have to do that. And then I would sit down. This is my favorite part. I would sit down with a tracing pad and a pencil, number two pencil, and I draw a five and a half by eight and a half rectangle. And I would just start right writing the title of the book over and over and over again, you know, page after page after page, just letting the words speak to me. And, and I, w- I would end up filling up the entire tracing pad, you know, and, and by the time I got to the end, the, the, the title type had gone from just an amorphous jumble of letter forms to something more precise. And that's when I realized that I had a typeface that didn't exist and I was going to have to try to figure out how to create it. But um, without even realizing it, that this was this was an exercise that was preparing me for doing logo design later on in my career, and that's how I design logos now. I just and that's like I said, it's still my favorite part. I think I think there's nothing more exciting than a sketch because a sketch has so much potential, um, and sometimes that's the best part. Sometimes I wish it could just stay as a sketch. That's another thing that I have a question about because logo designs are typically vector-based, but these very illustrative logos, how do you go about vectorizing something like that? (laughs) Well, now is a different time than when I designed those logos when there was no vector. Um, About a year and a half ago, I had a big retrospective exhibition here in New York, and it was really interesting to go through all of the, the work and figure out how to recreate it for the show because there were a lot of logos that were blown up to 15 feet tall. And you can't do that with the Manhattan Fruity logo because that was not done in vector. So um, for the show, we had to we had to redo a lot of the logos because who knew? Who knew like when you designed the logo 20 years ago that, that this is gonna happen? Um, and, and at the time, you know, the way we designed the logos, it was it was perfectly adequate and there was never any problem, except every now and then, like if we were working with an awning company, they, they would say that they needed it in vector. And then it had this really intricate illustration, which was difficult for everybody. But now um, I think it's a lot easier to vectorize things like that. And uh, we, we can find ways to get around it. But that said, I mean, we do go to great pains. Um, 
with the logos here to make them look like they weren't done on the computer. That's always my goal. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to make it look ye old, but I, I do like to like to try to maintain that, that hand-drawn quality in any way that we can. So sometimes, uh, like with a poster that we did recently, um, sometimes I'll sketch out the type and then um, it'll be vectorized and then, it, and then it, it'll be drawn in pencil after it's been vectorized and scanned in and that's what we use rather than the vector so it's not so perfect. Because this was done for a poster and I didn't want it to blow up big and be so crisp it just it didn't feel right for the wrapper on a chocolate bar <laughs> so even when you're aiming to retain that hand-drawn aesthetic for a logo am i right in understanding that you'd physically just do it by hand first and then scan it in and vectorize it based on the the physical drawing yes yeah yeah whatever it takes sometimes it looks better that way yeah i agree um you you also mentioned that sometimes when you would uh, present a logo with some kind of illustration what you would do is then pass it on to an illustrator to create the the artwork Mm -hmm. i just wanted to understand this process a, a little more so in those instances where you do have to work with an external illustrator Obviously, there's a, a cost to that. How does that work from a pricing point of view? Because it, it sounds like there would be an extra cost to the client outside of the um, scope what the uh, client had paid for initially. Is is that correct? Well, I yes. Whenever when I first meet with clients and I'll talk to them, and that's and that is the good thing about talking ahead of time about whether or not this might possibly have an illustration in it or not before I even do a, a, a sketch because they need to know that this is not included in my fee. So I'll, I'll tell them, you know, I'll show them samples like American Spoon that has a very intricate uh, illustration in it that I was done by Christopher Wormel, who is a wonderful uh, wood engraver in England who I've worked with a number of times. Uh, a lot of the illustrators I work with on Logos are sort of in, a, in my stable from going on for many years now, and which is nice because, because uh, we're used to working with each other. Um, so I'll talk to the client and say, you know, well, we could take this approach with an illustration, but it will be an extra fee. And I'll show them something like the American Spoon logo and tell them what that, that range of fee could be. Or sometimes we, um, as I mentioned, sometimes we'll just create it in-house if it's simple enough. But I'll still, I'll still have to bill them for that because it's still extra work. <laughs> but I'll also explain that to them up front as well. So when you do send that to an, an, an illustrator, do you explain to the client that the work is actually being done by an external illustrator? Yeah. No, I'll show them... I'll, I'll show them the sample of the logo that was done or the logos that they've done for me. And then I'll show them their portfolio online so they know exactly what they're doing. And, and I also, it says in my contract, and I'll remind them, of course, that they need to pay the illustrator directly. I don't get involved in that. And then how does the actual relationship with the illustrator happen? Are you art directing them in some way? Yes. Um, by showing them examples of how you would want it to be done? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because I'll send them the, the logo design with the placeholder art, and then I'm, I'll usually be extremely specific about um, what we require. Because that, that was the hard thing, like, especially when I started doing restaurants, to hire an illustrator 
when you're working with a restaurant where they, they don't get it at all. Because here I'd come from book publishing where I'd read a book, I'd read a manuscript, and I'd decide to use an illustrator. Uh, and I'd, I'd just show the portfolio to the editor, and they'll say, okay, that looks good. And then I'll show them the sketch, which was usually just a really simple sketch on tracing paper. And you really had to take a leap of faith because you're looking at, I, I would show them the sketch and I'd show them their finished, what their finished artwork would look like. But still, you know, it was amazing that, that the editors would go along with it. And then we would get the finish and I would just, you know, hold my breath that everybody would like it. But it usually worked out okay because I, I had a good relationship with all the illustrators that I worked with in publishing. But in in restaurants, it's very difficult because they're, they're not going to use their imagination. And so that's why I, I work very hard to, to show a placeholder art that looks as close as possible to what the finish will look like. Recently, we were working on a, um, a logo for an alpaca farm. <laughs> and, 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 I, and same thing, like I, I told the client that we would we would try some options as monograms. We would try some that were purely typographic. And I wanted to try one that would look like an illuminated letter. And she didn't know what that was, so I had to send her samples. And uh, So she liked that idea. But then to, to try to comp that up, where do you find any illustrations of alpacas You know, it, that look like wood engravings? I even contacted the illustrator. I said, by any chance have you ever done uh, a wood engraving of, a, of an alpaca, and he said no. And I looked through his books. We found, um, and I looked through a book uh, that I also use as reference um, that, that has a lot of wood engravings in it. So one of my designers did a, did a really incredible job just Frankensteining it together from a cat, and he made it look like he made it look like an alpaca, which was pretty miraculous. So. So whatever you have to do. It sounds impressive and it's useful to know that process. Is, uh, I, I, I know myself, I'd, I'd love to sometimes provide solutions like that, but I don't feel capable of uh, doing those intricate illustrations. So it, it's good to know um, how you go about doing that so that I could potentially do the same. And I'm sure listeners feel the same. Um, another area that I'm keen to ask you about is is typography. Uh, design as as I know that you worked on some really beautiful uh, typefaces can you talk through how you've gone about designing typefaces as you have done well a few years ago I did something I said I would never do I I designed a typeface because for all these years I would only design the letters I needed for a logo or a book title or or chapter titles but I had no patience for the rest of it no numerals punctuation but I couldn't say no to the Hamilton Woodtype Museum, which is an amazing place. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's it's the place to see the best and biggest wood type that you've ever ever seen. Um, so they they had invited me to design a typeface that would be cut out of wood and sold digitally as well. I decided to develop an Italian futurist typeface, which was named Mardell after Mardell Dubeck, who was a longtime pantograph operator at Hamilton, who came out of retirement to cut the wood for this type. And they actually invited me out there to see it in action, which was really fantastic. So after that, I decided that whenever we have any downtime in the studio, we should work on fonts. Uh, so the next one was Montecatini which uh, which takes its cues from Italian 
Stile Liberty posters, which was their Art Nouveau period. And my favorite thing about this style of lettering was the use of ligatures. So, so for our font, we designed 200 of them, which was pretty great. And then that was followed by Marseille, which is a, a French Art Deco-themed sans serif that comes in six weights. And that was developed from the lettering that I had used long ago for the cover of The Lover. So in, in most cases, these type treatments are, are ones that I've been using in my work for years, but now they've finally found a home and other people can use them as well. And it's, it's also really nice to get a royalty check once a month. <laughs> I can imagine. So if someone wanted to create a typeface, what software would you recommend uh, they use? We use Glyphs. And uh, it's, it's a pretty sophisticated program and it's, uh, it's, it's worked well for us because, you know, uh, I knew how to make letter forms, like, like I said, for the five letters I needed for a logo, but I certainly never thought about making it into a font. And, you know, there are a lot of requirements. When I worked for Herb Lubalin years ago, before I worked at Pantheon, you know, he was designing typefaces, but it was a, well, it was an, an easier and more difficult process then because we didn't have a computer but you also didn't have to do all those extra characters and diacritics and everything else that you have to do now. Uh, but, but now, because of the computer, anybody can be a typeface designer, just like anybody can be a logo designer, for better or worse. I think it's a good thing, to be honest, is it makes the whole process easier and, and faster for, for those who are experts. And it also opens up the doors to, to people like myself that you know just want to try it out and experiment with it a little bit. Now, uh, another topic I wanted to ask you uh, more about is your books. Um, a few of them have collections of incredible typography. For example, uh, there's one I've seen that you've done recently of signage in Barcelona, which is somewhere I'm planning to visit in a few weeks. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But what's the reason why you put these books together? Well, I think that as a designer, it's really important that you have that you must develop your own personal projects because I think it's really the only way that you'll grow and and find your your vocabulary. So as soon as I started my studio, I I looked for projects to create, and that's when I started the series on Art Deco graphic design. The first one was Italian Art Deco, and then we went on to do every other country. And um, I, and I did those with my husband Steve Heller. He would do the writing, and we would design the book in the studio. And, um, and, when, and in the studio, I had two rules for these books. We would always put a woman on the cover, and we would always crea create a font exclusively for the book based on an image that was used inside the book. So Steve and I have done uh, over 20 books together. Most recently, we've done what we call our S series. It's scripts, shadow type, stencil, and slab serif. So it's I I find that it's a great way to just take all of our collections because we're you know we're obsessive collectors and put them put them out there so other people can enjoy it and it's also an easier way for me to find all this stuff because I never know which drawer to look when I'm when I need it. So in the meantime, for decades, I've been obsessively photographing shop and restaurant signage in Europe, uh, particularly in Italy and France. And whenever I traveled to Italy, I would always make a point of going to a city I had never visited before 
just so I could document the signs. You know, I started out shooting these in 35 millimeter slides, and then I did point and shoot, and then finally I got up to digital. So they were never meant for anything more than my own reference and enjoyment. I, you know, I never considered uh, a book. But as the science started disappearing at a rapid rate, and as the digital technology got better, I finally realized that I had to seize the opportunity and, and do these books before it was too late. But as many of the signs started to vanish, one after another, it was really painful. Um, but as, as the quality of the digital photography got better and better, I sort of felt this sense of urgency to record as much of, of the typography as I could before it was too late. So I spent a lot of time on Google Street View here at my desk in my office, uh, just just trying to relocate signs that I had photographed decades ago. I still had all the negatives from the point-and-shoot prints, so I used those to figure out the sequencing and then, and then check it on Google Street View. I couldn't have done it without that. Um, and that, so when I did my Italian book, I went to Italy four times that year, and I just, I tried to go back to re-photograph as many of the signs as I could, and for the ones that were no longer there, we had Photoshop. And, and so the great thing about when the first book came out is that, it, to my great surprise, it got really, really good press in Italy, which I wasn't expecting at all. And, and interestingly, they all said the same thing. They all said, gee, we walk by these signs every day and we never took note. And it took an American to come here to make us appreciate them. So that was a great compliment. And, uh, and so after I did Italy, then I did Paris and Barcelona which are, it's an enormous amount of work, but it, nothing makes me happier than, than doing that and, and making these discoveries and then passing them on to other people who will appreciate them. And then after the sign books, I started doing um, some products for the same publisher for Princeton Architectural Press. So I've done a line of pencils, uh, Perfetto, Tutti Frutti, and Brillante, which are all They've all done very well, and they're all inspired by my collection of Italian double-sided pencils from the 1930s. The colored pencils, Tutti Frutti, have done the best because I didn't, I didn't anticipate the adult coloring book revolution. So everybody who buys a coloring book has to buy pencils, which is great. <laughs> yeah, they've been really popular even in my house. <laughs> now, with your books, I, I can see that you put a lot of time, effort, and energy into them because... Every time I see a new one come out, it's, it's got such a nice hardback cover to it. And it just looks absolutely um, stunning. Oh, I think you. they're obviously very inspiring. And it, it's nice to see that work because not everyone gets to travel. And I, I think it's really uh, great that you put these together. And they're really inspiring books for anyone interested in design and typography on, on top of people that are just interested in uh, you know, travel. Thank now, you. You've been incredibly successful in your career, having done a huge body of work and you've received numerous awards, which is absolutely incredible. What do you feel is the primary reason for that success? Oh, well, aside from luck, <laughs> I, I think that you just have to keep working. And fortunately, I enjoy it. I, don't, I wouldn't know what else I would do. And you have to keep reinventing yourself, you know, because just as the industry keeps changing, we have to change at the same pace. I mean, imagine if I had stayed at Pantheon Books and I was still doing book jackets. I shudder, I shudder to think of it. Um, 
But I think it's really important to have a second or a third act or more. It's, it's uh, a, a new and exciting challenge. And you can do your best work in your third chapter. So I, I highly recommend it. The other thing that's been very important to me is being a mentor. Because when I started my career, there were no role models for women, none. I mean, I really looked and I couldn't find one. And as a result, I've made a point throughout my career of mentoring young female students and designers. And I've been, I've been very lucky to have had many talented designers, male and female, working for me over the years. So that's very important. And oh, and then most importantly, I never take vacations. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I spent a very stressful year writing and designing my monograph, Elegantissima, I made a vow that once I was finished, I would take a month off, something that I had only done once in my career, and that had been 30 years before. So let me tell you something. Every 30 years, it's a really good idea to take a month off. But not for a vacation, of course. Um, I, that's when I did Grafica de la Strada, my first sign book. And I think it was definitely better than a vacation. That, that's interesting to hear. Like, I, I haven't personally taken any time off for personal projects like that since I've started out working. So I should consider that for the future. Um, another area that I'm keen to discuss uh, before we end the interview is... Uh, like throughout this, you briefly mentioned about women in, in graphic design. And I know throughout your career, there haven't been many um, female graphic designers. Um, there's certainly very few role models uh, from your generation, that, that's for sure. Uh, although I think this situation is improving now, I still think it's a fairly male-dominated industry and there's still uh, substantially less female role models right i feel that you are one of few really inspiring graphic designers that have had a, an incredibly successful career so i'm not sure how to ask this question but i wanted to ask something along the lines of uh do you have any advice for female graphic designers that that want to be successful like you have done well, what, what I should explain first, though, um, is that when I started my studio, because this, this resonated a lot for me. When, when I started my studio, it again, it was in the pre-Google era. People, believe it or not, people had to find you in the telephone book. Imagine that, right? So you, could, you couldn't get very creative when you named your studio. It, they had to be able to find you by your name, you know, um, so... But what some people were doing would be like, I, so what, what was I going to do? Feel, Louise Feely LTD, which is what I am, or it could have been Feely Design or Feely Associates to make it look like I was big and, and maybe not just one woman. But um, I was very aware that by calling it Louise Feely LTD, that, that this was a liability, that um, people some people weren't going to call me because of that. But I decided... That's all the more reason why I wanted to name it that, because I really wanted to send a clear message, and that was, if, if you have a problem with my being female, then I have a problem with you being my client. And, um, and I don't regret it. Uh, but now, I mean, now, 30 years later, I think it's a much better time for women by far. It still is not easy, but, um, and it's certainly what's going on with our government right now doesn't help. But I think we just have to keep 
fighting that uphill battle. And it, you know, there, we have small successes and we just have to work with, with what we can. But I, I can recommend a few people that you can interview for your podcast to get your numbers up. But I'm, I'm glad that you're, that you're aware of that. But it, yeah, it's, it is difficult. But I also have to say that I just, just last uh, week I spoke, I gave a keynote address at um, TypeCon, which is part of the Society of Typographic Aficionados. And um, I was really quite impressed to see that there were three keynote speakers and they were all women. And this is typography. So I, that gave me hope. Yeah, things are, are definitely um, changing. Like the topic is being widely um, discussed now. And, and I, I would say within like the next 10 years, I'd like to think that the numbers will become more equal and we'll start to see more and more, you know, female graphic designers um, become a great success like you have been. I do think that you're one of those people that have, been through the hard times and uh it's nice that you're still doing work and and being an inspiration and and role model for other women in in graphic design that want to do something like you have done i think it's amazing what you've done especially with the challenges that you faced um you've been incredibly successful and as i mentioned i'm I'm a really big fan so i just got to say thank you so much for being on the podcast and and for making Uh, time to speak to me today it's it's been a real honor thank you very much it's a pleasure Ian thank you well that was such a great interview I I think it's probably one of the best so far from all seasons Louise thank you so much for your time it was a real honor to be able to speak to you and and thank you for uh, sharing so much of your story with us if you'd like to learn more about Louise or to find links to any other books, um, website and so on, make sure to check out the show notes for this episode, which you can find just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash 3.10. In the show notes, you'll also find a full transcription of the interview and any links to any resources we might have mentioned too. And if you're keen to talk about this episode or anything else logo design related, the best place to do that is in the Logo Geek community on Facebook. And you can find that just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash community or by searching for Logo Geek on Facebook. This episode sadly concludes this season of the podcast, but I hope to be back with another 10 episodes early 2019. Actually, I have a secret. Thanks to Hola Brief, this season has two more bonus episodes. So I'll actually see you again in a couple of weeks' time when we will continue with more amazing interviews like this one. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this season, please write a review on iTunes. I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time doing this and I rarely hear back from people. So if you've got some time, write a review on iTunes and, and that will help me to be able to reach more people like you. So for now, have a great week and I'll see you soon for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast. <laughs>